Hey, Pioneers, welcome to episode number 341. Today's episode is just fascinating. We are going to be talking about a self-sufficient challenge. This was a 30-day challenge that our guest did, but here is the part that I find fascinating. This includes all spices, including salt, had to be something, condiments, like the whole the whole thing had to be items that he was able to produce and make from their area or their homestead. And I've I've talked to quite a few different people who have done different versions of challenges with their eating, where they were trying to do for a certain amount of time only things that they produced or only homegrown harvested. We've, we've had a couple different episodes of that, but it has never went to the depths and the level of actually including your own salt and spices, like every single aspect. But finding those things through foraging or being able to grow an instant some of the, the spices and the salts that we go into in is fasting. In fact, you'll hear where I get really excited about one of the items that we're already growing and how I can use that more. It's rhubarb, but used in a way you probably have not thought of, or at least I have not used before. So lots of great little tidbits like that. But what I think was the most fascinating was what what was actually gained and learned observational wise from the challenge and how there were certain things that impacted and changed the way that Carl is still eating to this day. So, so, so many good things in this episode, including we get into some foraging and and different things like that. There is just a breadth of information, but I also think you will find it very insightful and inspiring, along with a lot of food for thought that you'll then be able to think through the items that you're reaching for and things that you are making and where are some ingredients that are still coming from outside sources. And and maybe, maybe you'll be able to use some of the tips that Carl shared with us and they will be things that you'll be able to grow, produce or forage yourself as replacements. But our, our guest today is Carl, who is the host of the Self-Sufficient Hub podcast and YouTube channel. And what is interesting is Carl does all of what we're going to share with you while still working a full-time job, including the self-sufficient challenge. So that, I hope, gives you lots of inspiration because I know many of you are in positions where you are still working a day job, but it doesn't limit you as much as you would think. You're still able to do quite a lot. For all of the links and resources and different things that we talk about in today's episode, you'll want to make sure that you go to the blog post that accompanies this. That's at melissaknorris.com forward slash 341, because this is episode number 341. Again, melissaknorris.com forward slash 341. Today's podcast episode is sponsored and brought to you by ButcherBox. Now, it goes without saying, I do firmly believe in raising it yourself is the absolute best. And if you can't raise it yourself, finding a local farmer or a local place in your community that you are able to get that. However, there are instances where that is not an option for you at this moment in time. And ButcherBox can be a great 
source for your meat needs. They are partners with companies and farms that have the highest standards of quality, especially for 100% grass-fed beef, which is really important to us. We do grass-fed and grass-finished beef and pasture-raised for all of our animals. But if I was ever to not be able to raise our own for anything or I had to search out an additional source, 100% grass-fed beef would be the only way that we would go. And ButcherBox has right now a special. If you go to butcherbox.com forward slash pioneering today, butcherbox.com forward slash pioneering today, you can get two pounds of ground beef free in every order for the life of your membership. And ground beef is one of the staples or the cornerstones that I use in our cooking because I can turn it into so many easy dishes, especially if I haven't really meal planned or prepped ahead of time and things that I know that the kids will enjoy and like. In fact, one of one of our favorite things, and it's just so simple, but hamburgers. I We love to have hamburgers because you can really change up the flavor by adding in grilled mushrooms and cheese or doing a bacon and avocado. Of course, just your standard pickles. I even like to use our Curtido, which is a El Salvadorian Spanish version of sauerkraut. Oh my goodness, like that's one of my favorites. Or you can even get a little bit crazy with your hamburgers. There was a burger we had at a local restaurant. This is gonna sound weird, but I tell you what, it was one of the best things I've ever had. Now, this is like a comfort meal, like I am super hungry, gonna have type of hamburger, but it was a mac and cheese hamburger. I know, I know. So they took the mac and cheese and they must have like made it and then put it in like a a little, like a circular form and then baked it so that it did hold in that circular form. And then they put an extra slice of cheese on top and melted it. So it kind of helped hold it to, to the bun and the patty. Oh, you guys. And then they had a, like a chipotle sauce on top of it. Ooh-wee. That was at a, one of the local restaurants that we have in our area, but definitely duplicatable at home if you have good ground beef. And we actually did a taste test of our grass-fed beef against butcher boxes. They sent me out a package so I could try it. And ours was a little bit brighter in color, but taste-wise, I didn't even tell the kids that it wasn't our grass-fed homegrown ground beef and made meatballs with it, which is one of their favorites. And they couldn't tell a difference. So cooked, tasted, great, really good quality. Even us living way out in the boonies always arrives completely frozen in an excellent shape. So to take advantage and get two pounds of ground beef, which with meat and beef prices, what they are right now, that is becoming even a better deal. You can grab that at butcherbox.com forward slash pioneering today. And now on to or into, I should say, this interview with Carl. Well, I am so excited to have you here, Carl. Welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. So I was very, very intrigued. You first sent me an email and what I loved from what you shared with me. And I was like, oh my goodness, I really need to have him on the podcast to share this was you did a self-sufficient challenge, trying to say that one three times fast. (laughs) But what I found fascinating about that 
is you that included salt and spices. Yeah. And I have actually I have never spoke with anybody who has harvested their own salt and also was able to incorporate spices and that. And what I also found fascinating about your story is how when you came, when you guys became to improving your sustainability and all of that, kind of like your your story and how long you've been living this lifestyle as well. So I'd love for you to kind of back us up just a little bit. Let us know some about your guys's journey um, that you are doing with your wife and your guys's kids, and then really dive into the nitty gritty of what your self-sufficient challenge was. Yeah, cool. Well, uh, I suppose I'll try and keep to the short version, although even the short version isn't really short, but the, the long story short is I'm a builder by trade and we were doing, uh, my company was doing an awful lot of work for a lady that I'd known for a long, long time, so long that we'd become very, very close friends. And we were basically renovating this large country property that she owned, among many others, with a view to her moving in. And then literally a week or so before she was due to move in, she changed her mind, decided she was going to live somewhere else and basically said to me, would you like to live there? And I said, well, obviously I'd like to live there, but I could never afford the rent because she was looking to rent it out, but she didn't want to just put it on the open market because she'd done it up for herself to use. And she said, well, I can basically offer it you a massively reduced rent. So we had this opportunity to move into this country house. That ha- I say country house, the, the house itself isn't particularly grand. It's, um, it's a lovely house, but it's not massive. But the grounds, it had eight acres of garden, basically. And we had this opportunity that we would otherwise never have had to live here at a rent we could afford, which is where we've been for the last four and a half years, something like that. And when we moved in, We had no real background or interest in growing our own food and doing anything like that. We were just your regular people that you bump into in the supermarket that are buying all of their food in the shops. And we we kept a few chickens and we'd come from a rural background. So we were still fairly connected to, you know, the out of doors and the, you know, nature and uh, the nature's cycles. I used to do a bit of foraging, but that was about as far as it went. And then it very instantly dawned on me when we moved into this property, I can I could feel another version of myself, the other side of the hedge, looking over the hedge and thinking, well, what a waste. You're not doing anything with all that land. And I just couldn't bear it. I couldn't bear the thought of letting this opportunity and letting any of the land go to waste. So I immediately set to work trying to make every single corner of the the land do something and be productive. So literally within the first year, we'd gone from a completely standing start to having milking goats, uh, pigs we were breeding, obviously a a big vegetable garden. I'd, I'd planted loads and loads of fruit trees and an asparagus bed, and I'd signed up for a beekeeping course. And I really jumped in with both feet and it just, it grabbed me and took hold of me. And I've never looked back. I've always someone, I've always been someone that has had an interest in preparedness and prepping and that kind of thing. So that tied in nicely. But like I say, we'd, we'd not had a background in much food production up until that point, but it was just something that really grabbed hold of me and has become a huge part of who I am now. That is amazing because let it, in the first year that you guys went into raising and butchering the pigs and doing dairy animals and having this huge garden, like 
That is a ton in four years, let alone one year with, as you said, (laughs) I mean, I'm just like, oh my goodness, like we don't even breed our own pigs. Now we do raise and we have butchered them ourselves. And we actually just got, since you and I talked last, I, we just acquired our very first dairy animal. So we got a dairy cow nice. literally two days ago and I'm already like, oh my gosh, like yeah. there's so much to learn. And that's just bringing one new thing and you brought a lot in. So one like kudos to you because I know how much, I know how much work that is, um, but it's really exciting. I think because I love that whoever is listening into this, you don't have to have grown up with this as a background. Like I was very lucky that I did grow up raising, you know, beef cattle and we had a big vegetable garden and my mom canned and preserved and that type of thing. But you're a testimony to look, you can do this and you can actually do it relatively quickly. It doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be something that you have always known, because I think sometimes people are like, oh, well, I'm not you know, I'm not going to be able to do that because X, Y, Z. So I love that you've shared that you guys didn't have that background and you've been able to jump in. I, you said both feet, but I'm like, that was both feet and hands. <laughs> well, it's, it's probably worth mentioning, Melissa, you know, just because I did all these things, that's not to say I did them all well. And one of my greatest strengths, I think, is that I'm super, super comfortable making mistakes and failing. And I think, you know, if you've got that mindset that you're quite willing to have a go, I call myself the have a go homesteader because I'll have a go at anything. And I'm really quite comfortable sharing not only my successes, but my failures. And I think that's by far the quickest way to learn. And and when I say that we had milking goats and all of those things, I don't know. I, I think I, I think I was probably milking within a year of us moving in, but I might not have been, but we certainly had the goats, you know? Mm-hmm. And again, with the pigs, you know, we eased ourselves into it. So the first pigs we had here were actually someone else's. We had this piece of woodland. I didn't have any use for it. And I thought pigs are perfect. My family had quite a lot of reluctance to us raising our own meat here. So we, I I sort of took a stepping stone approach to that. So what I did is there was a small holding that we drive past or that I drive past on my way home from work most days and they kept pigs. So I knocked on their door and said, would you fancy having, because they obviously they were running to sort of the maximum capacity of their ground. I could see that. And I said, would you be interested in having an extra litter this year and keeping them in my wood? I will look after them. I, you pay for the food. They're your pigs, but I will raise them. I'll look after them and provide the land absolutely free. And then at the end of it, when they go off to get slaughtered, we'll have some pork out of it. And that's how we did it. And then the second year, we sort of moved a step further and we bought our own pigs and raised them from piglets. uh, And then they went off to slaughter. And then the third year I did the butchering and slaughtering myself. And then we introduced a breeding program. So it was an incremental thing, but I definitely started everything all at once. Yeah. And I really want to pull that out where you said that you don't do everything well, and there are failures because I'm the same. And I know it can be easy when, you know, when we're sharing and, and teaching or when you listen to people where they're at now, it's really hard to put in all of the all of the ways that you have failed. But as you said, the learning, at least for me, I learned so much more from my failures or when I do make a mistake than I ever do from the successes, which we live in a society overall, which kind of tends to glorify the successes. You know, we love 
we love those stories where, where we see people and you're like, oh man, like I did this. And we see the kind of that after picture, but I'm with you. Like the majority of my, all of my learning has really came the most part from when I have made mistakes or failed at something. I learn more from what not to do. I think often <laughs> than, yeah. than more the, the to do. So I'm glad that you brought that out and, and said like it was done in stages, but you know, here's how we started year one and then moved through that. And something else that we, you touched on briefly earlier, which I would love to talk about more because, uh, you know, within gardening and homesteading and self-sufficiency, there is a lot of focus on, you know, what we are cultivating and growing in orchards and livestock and gardens. But there is a good deal of food that we don't actually have to grow ourselves, but we can harvest. And that is within foraging. So could you talk a little bit more about the foraging and how you kind of fold that into your guys's overall self-sufficiency? Yeah, well, foraging is something that I have been into since I was a child. And I've got, I would say I'm in my mid forties now. I've spent all my life with one sort of toe in the water of foraging, but I really dove into it headfirst, probably a goodness me, maybe 12 years ago when I, I had an illness that basically kept me off work for a few weeks and I had nothing to do with my time. And I went out, I've always been mushroom foraging has always been my thing. And I really, you know, dedicated a great deal of time to learning that area. And it's just, again, it's something that's just grown from there. I lead foraging courses now in the Southwest UK. And, you know, just the idea, you know, you go out for a walk, you see these mushrooms lying about and you think, well, I can eat some of these and some of them will kill me. Surely I should spend some time learning which is which and uh, because we're passing all this amazing food, but, but it doesn't just stop at mushrooms. Something else I, I really enjoy sharing People are just unaware of the abundance and rich history we have with the native wildlife that's growing all around us. I try and use permaculture principles in my garden. And one of the things that we talk about when we talk about permaculture is learning from nature and how nature provides abundance without anyone having to be there doing all the things that we waste our time and energy doing sometimes. <laughs> so, you know, there, there are things out there that we can be using. And, and one of the stories that I love to share is around a plant. Now, I don't know, obviously I live in the UK. I'm very, very familiar with all the things I can forage for here. So I don't know how well this will translate to every one of your listeners, depending on where they live and what grows there. And perhaps you will know, does, does a, a plant called Herb Bennett or Wood Avens grow where you live? It's quite a common weed here in the UK. Hmm. Not... Not that I'm aware of, but I know that there's there's some things that we do share like weed, but sometimes they'll be called like local names, sure, um, you know, sure. for things where it's actually is the same. Like there's even been uh, for, just for a quick example, like we had a plant that was my grandfather's absolute one of his favorite flowering bushes. And we always called it a Chinese rose bush. Well, lo and behold, I didn't find out until I was probably almost 30 years old. It's actually called a, it's a flowering quince. And so, oh, like, wow. yeah. You know, yeah. And so, which is very common, but I would just like, I'm like, oh, it's a Chinese rose bush, you know, because it was that localism. That's what my grandfather had called it. And, and he knew the plant as. So sometimes I know that there can be kind of like localisms on, on plant names and, yeah. you know, that. So, not to my knowledge, but I can't say that it doesn't grow here because it may buy something else, you know, a different name that sure. I'm not necessarily familiar with. But we do have, here for me specifically living in the Pacific Northwest, we have a lot of mushrooms and it sounds like you guys do too. So be very curious what 
mushrooms are you predominantly foraging? Because I want to see if there are similar varieties. Great. Well, um, if you don't mind, I, I will answer that. But I'll just, I'll just quickly want to tell a quick story about the Woodavens. Yes, yes, and, yes. Uh, so, so the, the scientific name, and I'm not sure how you pronounce this, is uh, Guillaume Urbanum. Now, I only ever use the scientific names in written text, so I, I'm not familiar with pronunciation, but that's what it's called anyway. But the point being is that another name for it, a common name for it, is clove root, because the roots are an exact like-for-like -like equivalent for cloves. Huh. And there was a time in our history, in British history, when you would have to have some clove roots in your mouth or about your person when you spoke to a dignitary because it would hide your peasant-like smell. But there was a, a, a equivalence of this in obviously the Far East. And the only reason, and this is a plant that grows everywhere. I can't think of a woodland or hedgerow that doesn't have some growing in it. And... The only reason it fell out of favour is fashion. And when the spice routes opened up to the Middle and Far East and we started importing all of these spices and things like that, then using cloves and clove root, using that plant to flavour your food was just a sign of your status. It's what the peasants did. Whereas if you could afford it, you would use the imported version, despite the fact it's no better. It's exactly the same. So that's just one great example that is, is a plant that's growing everywhere. No one uses it. Everyone buys cloves in the supermarket. And chances are, if you've got a garden, you've even got it growing in your garden. We have it growing all around our garden here. So, you know, that's a story I love to share. Going okay. on to talk about mushrooms. Sorry, go on. No, so while you were sharing the story, I'm like, I got to Google this and see what it looks like. <laughs> and so I'm looking at it right now and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I am pretty certain that I have seen that out in the woods. Of course, I'm going to have to do a deeper dive to make sure I'm accurately identifying any time we're foraging. But yeah, I am pretty certain that if it's not that it's one that looks very simple, similar and may even be, you know, of the same species. So I'm going to dive into this more. but. That's actually really exciting. So I will be looking at it more, but I think we may actually have it here. But I love I love the history and like the stories that you're sharing there of how we kind of got away from a lot of these plants and using them in everyday society. And some of them are just absolutely silly reasons, but they are what they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's just crazy. And and you can relate that to so many things. You know, that's the reason why a lot of people don't eat rabbit. That's the reason why a lot of people it's all to do with fashion, isn't it? And now it's ironic to me, we're on the cusp of this new culinary wave and we're seeing things like offal only showing its head in really high end restaurants. Yes. And, you know, it, it's it, it's cyclical because when something's rare, it becomes sought after and then everybody wants it. It's just, it's bizarre to me. And, and as far as I'm concerned, it's all about, you know, the, the, everything begins and ends in the kitchen. And if you cook well and you know how to use things, then all of these ingredients are almost created equal. Yes. Well, and even with lawns, I mean, the reason that we have large grassy lawns was because that showed that you were rich enough. You didn't have to raise all of your food in the front of your home. And that's how we, we came as a society yeah. to have more of these manicured grass that does nothing but make you work for it. It doesn't provide anything, but that's kind of how that 
it was a status issue, which is just fascinating. So yeah, that, that is really fun, but okay. So I am super curious though on <laughs> your mushrooms. I am, yeah. a, I, I love mushrooms. They're my absolute favorite. And we are just getting ready here for our morel season to come on. Like next week we should have morels popping up and I just can't wait. Wow. You know, you're very lucky over there in the States to have a morel season. We, we do occasionally see morels. I found my, I've only ever found black morels once in my life. And it's a very, very infrequent find over here in the UK, very, very sought after. And it tends to grow over here in wood chip, imported wood chip that people have put into their gardens. And it might oh. grow there if you're lucky for two years, but usually just you get one flush that's it, then it's gone. We don't have the uh, the forests of morels that you guys have over there. So that's one area that you definitely have the advantage. Oh, fascinating. Okay, so what are your, probably the more common mushrooms or your favorite ones that you guys have available and forage for? Yeah, so super common ones. Well, we're about to head, we're just about to start seeing St. George's mushrooms, which are our first big mushroom of the new year, if you like. Then as we go a bit later into the year, much like I imagine everywhere, it's it's the autumn when we do probably most of our harvesting. Mm -hmm. And we have something called the trooping funnel, which you also have, I believe, over there, Clytocybe geotropa. And when you find them, you can find them in huge profusions. And there's a troop growing in Europe, I think in France, that's something like a quarter of a mile long. And they're these really big mushrooms, the heads on them, the, the caps on them grow to the size of dinner plates. So wow. when you harvest some of those, yeah. So I'll be harvesting those and drying loads of those and we'll use them all year round. We also have the parasols and shaggy parasols which again, we, we in this household, we'd harvest them every year. Uh, giant puffballs, which I uh -huh. think are fairly ubiquitous. Yes. And uh, so a great tip for giant puffballs is to, well, firstly, they are one of the safest mushrooms anyone can forage. There's nothing that looks anything like them. The only tip you need in terms of safety is when you cut them clean through the middle, if they are clear white all the way through, they are safe to eat. Simple as that. When they get a little bit older and the insides start turning to port to spores, they will discolor and darken and actually become slightly carcinogenic. But while they're clear white through, they're really, really safe to eat. And what I like to do is cut them into about half inch strips and then use them as pizza bases. Absolutely oh. fantastic like that. Yeah, really good. Okay. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's hundreds of, of mushrooms. There's probably 30 or 40 that I forage for regularly as in every year. Chicken of the woods is another one that you will have over yes. there that we have here. Yes. Um, what about, I'm curious, lion's mane or chanterelle? Are those either of those? So chanterelles, chanterelles. Yes. Uh, not as common. Well, I don't know how common they are where you are, but they're not as common in my particular mushroom Haunts. I only okay. know a couple of places that grow chanterelles, but we definitely have them. Lion's Mane is an interesting one. I I know someone who comes out foraging with me sometimes who's found it once, but it's it's something that is now becoming more prolific. When you look into mushroom books from a few years ago here in the UK, it wasn't listed as a species, but because it's so easily cultivated mm -hmm. and it's one of the things that people cultivate in their gardens, we're seeing more and more escapees now ah. naturalizing in the UK. Yeah. Okay. Very fun. Yeah. Lion's Mane is one of our absolute favorites here. It's a 
at least I should say for us, it's a little bit harder to find on our on our own land or where we go. And it's like, I don't know about where you guys are, but here it's like, if you have a really good mushroom place, like I have to really, really like you. And before <laughs> I will ever show you my mushroom haunts because they are very much prized, prized areas. And so it's something you hold really close to the vest. You like, you don't necessarily always share that. So I should say within the places that we go and that I know, we have been able to find lion's mane, but not as prolifically as like chanterelles or even the morels. Those we find just much more abundantly out and about, not all over, but almost. So, uh, but lion's mane is one of our, is, as far as eating like flavor and texture. Oh man, mm. lion's mane is one of my absolute favorites. So, and, but interesting. Okay. Do you guys have truffles? Because I have never there's, we're supposed to have truffles here, but I personally have not found one, but it's like my new mission. I'm like, if they grow here, I'm going to find some truffles. <laughs> well, truffles do exist here, but for whatever reason, and I can't tell you what it is, they're just not something I've ever spent a tremendous amount of time or energy looking for, or, you know, learning about. They just seem, I, I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm a little bit too lazy. I'm, I follow the, <laughs> the, the 80, 20 rule, you know, I do the 20% yeah. of the work that's going to get me 80% of the benefits. And then I move on to the next thing, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely, I, I, I definitely hear you on that. It, it's funny, like every now and then I'll get a, a bee in my bonnet, so to speak about like something almost obscure. And I'm like, it becomes my mission. I'm like, I just yeah, really yeah. want to find one of those here. So that's kind of where the, the truffle is for me at this moment in time. But Anyway, yeah. So really interesting because there, there are definitely some similarities, but I think this also speaks to like, it's really important to know your local, your local area and that no matter where you live, there's going to be some type of food that you can forage that is wild grown where you live, but it may look different, obviously, based upon your climate, even compared to your climate, Carl, versus my climate. But that means that find someone in your area, do some research, but there will be things that you are able to forage in your area. And so if you can just be like, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to find two things that grow here that are edible and that I can forage and focus on that for your first season or your first time. And then you can begin to build out on that, um, you know, as you go forward and, and, and build up and find out more, more things that are in your area and go from there. But there is something in everyone's area that you're going to be able to forage for. A hundred percent. So much. And, you know, when I did my September challenge, I relied on wild stuff for lots of the sort of herbs and spices or particularly spices and replacements for things that you, you just don't grow. Things like vanilla that we do, you know, we, there's no way I'm going to set up the hot house required to grow my own vanilla, but it is something that I would have missed. So I was forced to really think about alternatives and the wild food is really what did plug the gap for a lot of those things. Not all of them, but for a lot, for sure. Okay. So yeah, let's talk about the self-sufficient challenge. So kind of what were your parameters that you had set up for it? Was there a, a time frame? What were the parameters? Right. Um, and then share, share about that because the, the salt and the spices aspect, as I, as I kind of prefaced before we got going, I was very, yeah. fa very, very fascinated um, about that. So Okay. Well, basically, obviously, I, I have a, a podcast and a, and a YouTube channel, and I thought it would be a great thing to share with my audience, this idea of setting myself a challenge, because I'm always talking about self-sufficiency, and I'm under no illusions that I'm ever going to be living completely self-sufficiently. If I want to have this conversation with you, Melissa, I would have to go and 
mine my own minerals and smelt my own ore and learn how to make my own iPhone, wouldn't I, to have this conversation? Well, that's never going to happen. And, I, and I'm fine with that. I'm very okay with that. Yeah. But for me, it's all about the journey and the direction of travel. And I want to move in that direction all the time. And I just felt it would be a really interesting idea to set myself the challenge of actually being self-sufficient. And I, for a month, I did it for the whole month of September. And again, I'm under no illusions. I chose September because I thought that would be the easiest month to do it in. I didn't choose a difficult month. I chose an easy month because I, I was under no illusions that I think we can all do the simple stuff really easily. But I wanted to do the whole hog and I literally didn't want to consume anything that I had to buy in a shop. So I was really super strict because so I've seen so many of these self-sufficiency challenges mm-hmm. where really it's just maybe meat or vegetables or both that they're doing. And they say, well, okay, we're being self-sufficient, but we are buying our flour or our grain or our sauces or our spices. And, and I wanted to go 100%, you know, even my drinks and things like that. I gave up the coffee I was drinking and, and all those kinds of things. And I just thought I wanted it to be a challenge. And it definitely was. I, um, <laughs> I documented every day on, on YouTube and there were, there were highs and lows. There were a couple of low points, but mostly it was really, really a really great thing. But the parameters of the challenge that I set myself were really quite simple. I was only going to eat things that I could procure myself, whether that's by growing or by fishing or by foraging or however I did it. And I only had one get out of jail free card, which was that I could barter. I could trade things, but I was really strict with myself on that as well. I could only trade food for food and I could only trade things of equivalent value. So I couldn't trade an hour of my time for a lasagna, for example. Uh So there were were only two things I traded over the whole month. There were only two items I traded. And one of them was flour because we don't produce our own grains. Uh-huh. And we traded our eggs that we produce with our bakery that's just up the road. And they gave us a bag of flour and we gave them loads of eggs. So I got that. And the only other thing is something that we now produce, and that is honey. I didn't, I had bees, but I didn't have a very good year with my bees, my first year having bees. And we weren't able to harvest any honey. So I traded some goat's cheese that I made for some honey. So I think. I was, you know, as strict as I could possibly have been. And I was doing it with a view to even the things I was trading and bartering for were things that I could produce and I probably would produce at some point in the future. And it was just honey and flour. So those were my rules. And I didn't break them for the entire month. Okay. Did you, was your family on board with this or were they doing it with you or was it just you? It, it was just me. My, okay. my children, my children are young teenagers and, uh-huh. you know, they're all in <laughs> yes. school and stuff. And it's, <laughs> there's, only so, there's only so far that, that the family are willing to go. But, okay. but what was interesting, even when we sat down at dinner, it's still 80% of what we were eating was the same. It was just that tinkering around the edges and the, the difficult stuff was the stuff that I was doing on my own. Okay. So, that uh, that uh, that is fascinating on wh- how I love the parameters on it had to be equal value and food for food, like not time or or things like that. And so it was the flour and the honey. And we will definitely link, guys, in the blog post that accompanies this episode in the show notes. Like we will link to the series where on Carl's YouTube channel where you were going live every day uh, with this. Um, so I'm curious like one for the main like with the salt and the spices especially the salt 
kind of like the your top ones that you that you used and you that you really found like man like this really made the difference on like me enjoying eating this you know versus not like you felt yeah, yeah. the most important ones i guess yeah well so obviously i think is a is a necessity yes. not only dietarily but for flavor and but ironically it's it was one of the easiest ones to take care of oh. i i literally i just i just harvested some seawater it's as simple as this now you you want to if you're going to do this you want to check that okay. you're harvesting clean safe seawater i'm very lucky i live in the uk if you live in the uk you're never more than 70 miles from the coast uh-huh. so that side of it is is fairly simple it's not always the case for you guys over there in the states i know to be that close to the coast but harvesting some seawater from so and you can you, there's all sorts of different environmental websites and places you can use to check the water quality but you want to get from somewhere clean but bear in mind we're also going to be processing it in a way that's going to clean it as well and then we just i I just pass that through a very fine cloth to filter out any impurities and then literally boiled it boiled it boiled it boiled it boiled it right down and then you're left with salt simple as that sea salt and uh from from just one liter of which is two pints roughly Mm -hmm. of seawater you're going to get 35 grams of salt and six grams a day is the recommended daily amount. So from one liter, two pints of seawater, you're going to get roughly enough salt for one person for a week. So you can see you don't have to harvest very much, one bucket full, and you've got a month's worth of salt. So that was actually really, really simple. How long did, and it, how long did it take then? Like, say you have a bucket for a month's worth. How long did it take to boil that before you actually got it evaporated down to the salt out of curiosity? It probably took a couple of hours. Okay. So if you, and, and of course you can do this outside on an open fire if you want to save on, on fuel costs uh-huh. and what have you. So it's definitely something everyone can do. And if you live near the coast and you've got kids, it's a great thing to do with kids. And then, you know, sprinkle that salt on your chips that night. And you've got this sense of achievement, something that you would, wouldn't, wouldn't probably think of doing because salt's so cheap in the supermarkets. But, you know, I couldn't have done it. I couldn't have done it without that. That was a huge part of everything that we eat has got a little bit of salt in it one way or another or most things. So yeah, that was the first thing. And I kind of, I ticked that box off a day or two before I started the challenge and that was all done. I was ready to go. The only thing to bear in mind is once you've got this salt, because it's got nothing in it, it's got no anti-caking agents or anything in it over the course of the month, by the end of the month, it got really, really quite damp and moist and you couldn't sprinkle it. It was, uh, you were almost scooping it, but uh, that didn't bother (laughs) me. That didn't bother me too much. And I could, of course I could have, repeated the process and dried it out again. Uh-huh. And then uh, for spices, well, we were obviously using a lot of things that we grow ourselves in the garden. So chilies we can grow here. So that was that kind of taken care of. But beyond that, there, there was just so much choice almost. And there were some areas that I did struggle with. So we can grow Szechuan peppers and we can keep those peppercorns and use them as pepper for salt and pepper pepper but i hadn't done that that's not something i'd planned and i'd done in advance so i was missing pepper so what i came to and it was suggested to me by by uh, someone who was following my my journey was to use radish and i just chopped up radish really really fine dehydrated it and ground it up yeah. and i used that instead of pepper and that worked really quite well especially if you've got a radish that is a bit too peppery to eat it's going to be going to work perfect as a pepper yeah. replacement 
Yeah. And then, uh, goodness me, where do I stop? Well, another thing I mentioned vanilla. Well, there's a, a wild plant that grows in our hedgerows all around the UK. And I don't know if it's there or not, but uh, it's called meadow sweet. And I uh -huh. made. Yeah, you have that. It sounds very familiar. I don't know if it, it grows here, but I do know people who who grow it. I've, I've heard the flower, so I'm not sure exactly where yeah, it, yeah. it natively grows. But yeah, that one is familiar. So I'm sure it grows in many areas of the States because, yeah, as soon as you start, I'm like, yes, I've heard of Meadowsweet. Yeah, well, you use the flowers to infuse things. So I made some Meadowsweet custard. And I have to say, it was as good as any custard I've ever, ever had, whether it was made from scratch or from a packet or whatever. It was as good as any custard I've ever had. And that was just some honey, some milk and meadowsweet as the flavoring for that vanilla and some flour, I think, to thicken. It's been a while since I made it. But uh, yeah, it's just that there are all these things just out there. And of course, for cloves, we had the clove root that we've already spoken about. We have a plant growing in every hedgerow up and down the country and it's called hogweed it's completely ubiquitous and you can use the seeds of that hogweed as a replacement for cardamom or coriander mm. that kind of blend and we, we use that and you're probably familiar with magnolia trees and yeah. the flowers of the magnolia tree you can use as a, a ginger flavor so there were all these different options available to me beyond the things that I was also growing in my garden as well, obviously, as flavoring. But you mentioned, was there one thing that really stood out for me? Well, I, I made, and I, I had my heart set on this dish that I wanted to make, um, a pork griot, which is a, a Haitian dish. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's like a spicy uh, chili and citrus mm. flavored dish. Well, we can't grow citrus here in the UK, really, not without you know an awful lot of effort and polytunnels and things like that, which we don't have. So we didn't have access to any citrus. So instead of citrus for this dish, I used, or instead of, is, is orange juice is the main citrus that you use in this dish. Well, I used pear juice from our trees and a rhubarb extract that ah. I'd made myself, which has got all of that lovely malic acid in. Yeah. And I used that instead of the citrus. And it was amazing. It was a real, real success uh, with a load of chilies that we'd grown in the garden, uh, some tomatoes, I think, and this lovely meaty, chunky meat chunky bits of pork. And uh, yeah, that was my pork griot. And that was just an absolute delight to eat. And as good as, again, any other version of that dish that I've ever, ever made. And that rhubarb extract is super simple to make. And rhubarb's one of those great plants that just takes care of itself pretty much. All you need to do is harvest it every year, this amazing perennial. Yeah. And we, we now use that rhubarb extract instead of lemon juice for pretty much everything. So on top of pancakes, it'll be rhubarb juice and a little bit of honey. And it's just, or not rhubarb juice, sorry, rhubarb extract. So it's, uh, we put some rhubarb, chop it up into sort of inch pieces, put it in a pot, lightly cover it with some water, boil it, simmer it down, strain it, and then reduce it. And that's it. And then that will go in the fridge and it'll last, well, it'll last a very, very long time because it's so acidic with that malic acid. And it's just a great replacement for lemons if you can't grow them. Okay, that is fascinating because in many other areas of the United States, because it's so big, like a lot of people can grow citrus, yeah. but I happen to live just north enough and we're cold enough. Same thing, like there are some people that will grow it by bringing them the trees indoors, but then you're confined to the pot size, mm -hmm. like all those things. So I don't grow citrus either, 
but rhubarb, my rhubarb is just flourishing right now. It's just all coming up, you know, probably a couple of weeks until it's quite big enough to harvest, but I adore rhubarb. It's actually one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite flavors, but I have not reduced it. Like you just explained. I'm like, oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. I'm like, yep, it'll be on in like two weeks. So I'm going to do, I'm going to do that. And that is just lovely and fascinating. And pear, I just put in a pear tree of our own. Pear is one of my absolute favorite fruits. Like a lot of people love apple butter. I'm like, oh, but have you tried pear butter? I just adore <laughs> pear. Um, anyways, that's one of my yeah. favorites. So when you were explaining that dish, I'm like, oh, I've got to go get this <laughs> recipe and like do these. Like it sounds so delightful um, and so good. So anyways, I'm excited to to try to try that. And um, yeah, with the rhubarb, I that is just fascinating on. And so how far down do you, out of curiosity, like, is there just kind of a guideline or just kind of go by flavor or whatever? How far do you reduce that down? So I probably, what I'm going to do, I'm going to take a pot. I'm going to put as many chunks of rhubarb in as I want to manage. And then I'm just going to cover them with water, just enough water to cover them. Then I'm going to simmer that for maybe 20 minutes, use a potato masher and just break it up as best I can. And then I'm just going to reduce that liquid down to about a third. And that's okay. going to give me something about the same strength in terms of that acidity as mm -hmm. lemon juice. And, it, and okay. it means that I can use that then in any recipe that calls for a dash of lemon juice. It's not exactly the same flavor profile, but malic acid, which is what you're getting, instead of citric acid, you're getting malic acid. And uh -huh. it is something that you'll see on the back of crisp packets and things is used as a flavoring. It's just not something that people are familiar with because, well, because who knows why? I don't know yeah. why. Why aren't <laughs> we doing this? It's, it's brilliant. But, you know, it's just not something that, I, I don't know if it's because rhubarb isn't really it's sort of looked down on a little bit by people who aren't living the sort of lives we are. Rhubarb's yeah. kind of looked down on a little bit, isn't it? Compared to, I suppose, well, I suppose it comes back to the stories I was telling before. All of a sudden, we could import these things from faraway lands, these citrus fruits that here in Europe, the, the European times, you know, we'd never seen them before. And all of a sudden we could import them. So anyone who was still getting their acid from rhubarb, I suppose, was looked down upon and we've never really realized the ridiculousness of that situation. Well, I have. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. My other thought is like, when you look at, you know, this, the square footage, like a lemon tree, I'm assuming, you know, you can get a lot of lemons per mature grown in the correct environment, et cetera probably volume-wise. So when we're looking at like big agriculture and they're looking at, mm -hmm. you know, maximum output for money returned on investment, my guess is if you took an acre of citrus trees fully mature versus an acre of rhubarb, you might be able to get more just because a tree produces way more than probably, you know, your your crown of rhubarb. I don't know. That that would be something I would be curious about as well. Maybe. I, I, Maybe. Yeah, I don't know, I'm, though. I'm not I don't sure. Know. I'm not sure. But also, but from my point of view, so many of us would plant an apple tree or a, a, a whatever in our gardens and not. And again, I'm not talking about people like yourself and myself and probably most of the people listening. Yeah. But most people wouldn't think, well, I want to plant some rhubarb and they should. Everyone should. If you're, if you're planting an apple tree, then you've got room for a rhubarb crown, haven't you? Agreed. Yeah. And rhubarb. No, I do like a rhubarb um, barbecue sauce, like and do it. Oh, wow. yeah. Rhubarb 
Like I love it as a dessert. Like it is fantastic paired like by itself or even paired with like strawberries, like strawberry rhubarb is one of the favorites, but I even like to use rhubarb as a base for barbecue sauce. It's really good. I'll have to look that up. Yes. Yes. Do. It's really, it's really, <laughs> it's fun. It gives it a different flavor and it allows you to, you know, not have to rely slow, slowly on tomatoes for like barbecue sauce base. Um, in fact, it doesn't have any tomatoes at all. So for people who may have nightshade issues, like a lot of people, you know, have um, sensitivities to consuming nightshade or tomato products sometimes, mm-hmm. then rhubarb is obviously not in the nightshade family. And so it could be a wonderful substitute if you have anybody who is allergic or sensitive to tomato products, whatnot. Um, and it just gives a, a whole new thing that you can do and have this condiment or this base you know, from a different thing, just like you were saying, rhubarb for lemon, what you can use rhubarb is a, is a tomato replacement in certain recipes. So, yeah, no, I love it. We, uh, when I was doing my September challenge, we had, uh, talking about tomatoes, you say tomato, I say tomato, uh, talking, <laughs> <laughs> talking about tomatoes. Uh, we had an awful, awful year for blight last year and it came in and it just destroyed all of my tomato crops. And in my head, planning forwards, you know, tomatoes make up such an integral part of a lot of our diet, at least mm-hmm. in my household. You know, we, we basically, by, we lost our entire tomato crop. We had, I think, one carrier bag full of tomatoes. That was it. That was all we harvested. And then the blight just wiped everything out. So I was coming into my September challenge really nervous that I wasn't going to be able to have the variety that perhaps I thought I was going to be able to, because all of a sudden, all of these Italian sauces and Italian style dishes were, were almost off the menu. I had enough tomatoes just because it's not just me, it's my whole family. I had enough of my own tomatoes just to make one or two meals. But I have to say that didn't happen in terms of the variety of what I was eating. Because sometimes when I talk about this September challenge, people think that I'm going to be eating probably you know scrambled eggs on sourdough toast three times a day for a month or what's the challenge in that? But I can tell you that if I were to show you my actual menu over the course of that month, no one, no one would think, oh my goodness, what a restrictive diet. It was incredibly varied. There was one night I made, uh, I made goat's cheese, spinach and crayfish ravioli. Mm. And I had that in a cheese sauce, in a goat's cheese sauce. And I, I would like, you know, I, I, I'd strongly suspect that, that most people don't get to eat home cooked, homemade food that, you know, that sort of variety and caliber on a, on a daily basis. And I was doing it with things that we had completely procured ourselves. And we, you know, we caught the crayfish out the river. We made the, made the goat's cheese from our own goat's milk. And then the following night I would maybe have, Hey, Oh, I was planning to have a mushroom stroganoff. That was one of the dishes that didn't go well, but we don't need to dwell on that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like that you shared there was one that didn't go well. (laughs) Yeah, really didn't go well. I had a bit of a wobble that day. (laughs) (laughs) What? I'm so curious. So so what went, went, went wrong with the dish? Everything went wrong with it, Melissa. (laughs) Yeah, I was so I was using loads of dried mushrooms that I'd saved over a long period of time, and that's so it really hit me quite hard when the dish was basically virtually inedible. But I, I've got this thing where I'm I I believe that I can recreate any dish, and 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 I was riding high off the success of the pork griot, which I'd had a few days previous. And I thought, well, I'm going to have a mushroom stroganoff and I'll worry about how I'm going to recreate the flavors of a mushroom stroganoff without access to any of the ingredients while I'm making it. Mm -hmm. And it just didn't go well. I had no cream. I had no Uh, mustard. 
And yeah, I was trying to reproduce these things with what I had on hand, some, just some, some thickened milk or whatever it was. And uh-huh. it just, it just, it couldn't have gone any worse. It, was, oh, no. it couldn't have. Oh yeah. It was, well, was, all, it, I, was it edible or just not enjoyable? I mean, it really comes down to what your definition of edible is. Really, I mean, <laughs> okay. it, it, it was certainly edible. It wasn't going to poison me. It just it wasn't enjoyable. But I think a lot of it was psychological because when I was doing this, it's all I was thinking about. I'd wake up in the morning and all I would think about is what I was going to be eating that day. Because what I, ha- what I haven't mentioned yet on this particular conversation is that my wife and I also, we work full time. We have full time jobs away from the house. So I was having to squeeze all of the meal prep around that work and also the meal prep for what I was taking to work to eat, because that was one of the biggest challenges I actually found was I was in the habit of just, I would buy my lunch when I was out at work, I would buy a lunch every day. And that was something that had to stop. And so so you you plan everything, your whole life, you just get consumed by this idea that, right, what am I eating? How am I going to prepare that? What do I need to prepare for tomorrow's dinner? So you do. And then when you have such a a failure like that, and, and I'd used up all these lovely mushrooms that I'd foraged and dried, it felt so much worse because I couldn't just reach for something else. Oh, well, that's fine. I'll give that to the, give that to the animals and I'll just pull something else out the cupboard because that wasn't a luxury I had. And I suppose in terms of the actual challenge of the challenge was the amount of time and effort that it took because that, you know, I had no access to anything shop bought, everything, every single thing, every ingredient had to be processed myself right from scratch, right from its inception to its final place on the plate. There was nothing at all that I could do to, to do any shortcuts. So that was definitely the biggest challenge in actually managing the whole month was the amount of time it took to live that way. And obviously having a full-time job, it was, it was all really concentrated in a few hours every day. My wife was, she was so sick of it. She said, I'm so ready for this to be over long before I was, I was, I got into it. I was quite comfortable in it, but just because of the, the amount of washing up I was creating and mess I was constantly creating in the kitchen. It was, you know, a different world because you don't, you don't realize how easy you have it when you can just reach for that jar of spices or that, whatever it might be, that condiment that you've got in the fridge. And of course, the other thing to say is that you and I, we're living in a world where we're always reaching for things that we've prepared six months before. And of course, a lot of the time, uh, those things that I prepared six months before, I hadn't prepared to the strict uh, rules of this challenge. So I wasn't, for the first two or three weeks, I was having to remake everything. There was nothing I had access to really, because even the pickles and things that I'd had in the fridge, they were used with shop-bought sugar, for example. Mm-hmm rather than okay. the things that stuck to the rules of this challenge. So normally we, we get in the habit, it's simple, simple things. Like I, I do most of our family's cooking. I tend to do it at weekends. You'll have to shut me up if I'm rambling too much, Melissa, please tell me. No, but no, most of our, <laughs> Most of our cooking I do at the weekends. So on a Saturday, I will cook basically a dish and I'll cook 20 portions. There's five in our family. So I'll cook enough to feed us for four nights. We'll have one that night, one portion or one set of five portions will go in the fridge to be eaten later that week. And then the other two sets of meals go in the freezer. And then I do the same on a Sunday. So effectively for two sets of cooking, I'm cooking enough for eight nights 
food for our family. And then every so often we're dipping into the freezer, pulling something out and that's going into our, well, all of that was gone. All of that was out the window and I, because they, they'd all use shop-bought salt or whatever it might be. So the first few days and the first week or two was much more difficult than the last days because I was building up this repertoire of things that I could then pull out of the fridge and use, different condiments and sauces that would add the flavors I wanted that I didn't necessarily have to start from scratch with again, because we, we, well, I was building up that cycle of using, reusing and making and what we all do with our leftovers and stuff. So yeah, it was definitely, it was a lot of work, a lot of physical time consuming work to, uh, to keep up with it all at the start for sure. Yeah. Because you held yourself to such a, a high standard there, like you said, even though we had, you know, made the pickles and, and grown the cucumbers, et cetera, there was ingredients in there that we hadn't processed. So you couldn't use it. Yeah. During the challenge. And, you know, even even when you are able to use those things, when you are cooking predominantly from scratch, even allowing yourself to use, you know, store-bought, you know, salt, whatnot, that type of stuff. Truthfully, I was just having this conversation with a good friend of mine who has food allergies. Um, Her children have two different food allergies. So she said, I have to pretty much make everything from scratch because what one child can have an ingredient, the other can't. And to try to find things you know, that, that meet both of their, their food allergies is almost impossible. And she, the same thing, she's like, it is so it's like a full-time job when you are literally Mm. making everything and then you're cleaning up, you know, it's like rinse and repeat. She goes, and, 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 you know, we are as a society, as a whole, we are not used to having to go to those lengths. So I love that you brought all those points up. So having went through this challenge and all of the the things that it that it entailed, are you glad you did it? And would you ever do it again willingly? Uh, Yeah, I'm definitely glad I did it. And I am doing it again every September, but I'm going to change it every year to maybe add some new elements or change it slightly and uh, tinker with it. I like the idea of doing my September self-sufficiency challenge every year. And like I say, what the actual challenge is might change slightly. I like the idea, maybe one year of doing it based around utilities. So I only use, or I don't use any, you know, utilities like the electricity or the water that comes into our house or whatever it might be. But yes, I'm definitely going to do it again. And what actual format it takes this year we'll have to wait and see because we're moving house shortly and we're not really sure where we're where we're going to sit insofar as food production come september but i'll be doing something for sure and another thing to mention you know you said would i do it again and what have you well one thing that's changed permanently is I haven't had caffeine since then I used to drink a fair amount of coffee and I gave it up for the September challenge because obviously I couldn't and uh, I I haven't I've had one medicinal coffee since then uh, when I was on a long drive and I needed it to keep awake but other than that I haven't and I've got no plans on going back to caffeine so yeah there's definitely been long-term repercussions from it and in terms of am I glad I did it 100% and I've learned so much you it's really difficult to understand how much let me let me start again let me rephrase that most people have most people who live in the western world in the developed world as we do have really no idea about where their food comes from. Most people have no idea at all. We are so we're in the minority of people who really understand 
where our food comes from. But there is really no substitute to realizing how little you do know to than doing something like this and realizing how dependent you still are than doing something like this. Because I genuinely didn't realize how dependent I was on mass production and the food system, the global food network and food chains. I didn't realize how dependent I still was even though I was doing all of those things. So it was a fantastic learning experience and really opened my eyes up. I was always, or I'll say always, you know, I went into this challenge of the idea of the, of the feeling that it was going to be really, really easy. And it really, really wasn't. <laughs> and uh, in different ways, you know, in different ways than I thought. And that's one of the main reasons I'm really glad I did it because I just learned so much. Yeah. Well, I, I find it, Fascinating. Um, I'm so glad that you shared it and that you're going to be doing it with different parameters each year. Yeah, you definitely are a a learner at heart, Carl, uh, which I <laughs> always say is a is a prerequisite for homesteading or self sufficiency, what whatever you know term you want to give it. But for the way of the way that we live, uh, you have to be a self-discoverer as well as a learner in order to do it long-term. So you definitely meet both of those. So I'll be fascinated to, to watch your, your next journey, um, your next challenge. So for those who are listening are like, man, like I, I want to, you know, I want to join. I want to kind of see more what you're doing. Where is the, the best place for listeners to connect with you? Well, I've got the self-sufficient hub podcast. I've recently changed its name to the Self-Sufficient Hub Homestead podcast because I think that helps people to find it. And also the Self-Sufficient Hub channel on YouTube. Those are the two best places to come and find me. And if you do happen to find yourself on the YouTube channel, I've got a separate playlist there, which was my September self-sufficiency challenge with all of the videos from each of the 30 days. Okay, great. Well, we will definitely link to those so that everybody can check them out. And thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Melissa. It's been a blast. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. So many wonderful tidbits and things in there. And if you missed or you want to go in and actually be able to read out some of the different plants and substitutes and all of those fun things, you can grab that in the blog post that accompanies today's episode at melissaknorris.com forward slash 341. I want to thank you so much for listening to today's episode, and I can't wait to be here with you next week. Blessings in mason jars for now, my friends. Mm-hmm.